This episode of Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. BunnySlippers.com. Check out their Wooly Bull Highland Cow Slippers. They're shaggy, fun slippers that you can wear around your house. Trust me, they look like they dust as I walk. I've, I've left a path definitely from the studio to, uh, to the kitchen. Anyway, BunnySlippers.com. This month we will be continuing with more W.B. Du Bois, and we will be listening to The Souls of Black Folk, which is a nonfiction piece, a historical piece, a piece of uh, uh, historical fact. Um, yeah, enjoy. There's There's some music in here. And not by me, I didn't score any of this, but enjoy The Souls of Black Folk by W.B. Du Bois. Here we go. The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. Music and text recorded by Toria's uncle. To Burkhart and Yolanda, the lost and the found. The forethought. Herein lie buried many things, which, if read with patience, may show the strange meaning of being black here at the dawning of the 20th century. This meaning is not without interest to you, gentle reader. For the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. I pray you then receive my little book in all charity, studying my words with me, forgiving mistake and foible for sake of the faith and passion that is in me, and seeking the grain of truth hidden there. I have sought here to sketch, in vague, uncertain outline, the spiritual world in which 10,000 Americans live and strive. First in two chapters, I have tried to show what emancipation meant to them and what was its aftermath. In a third chapter, I have pointed out the slow rise of personal leadership and criticized candidly the leader who bears the chief burden of his race today. Then in two other chapters, I have sketched in swift outlines the two worlds within and without the veil and thus have come to the central problem of training men for life. Venturing now into deeper detail, I have in two chapters studied the struggles of the massed millions of the black peasantry, and in another have sought to make clear the present relations of the sons of master and man. Leaving then the white world, I have stepped within the veil, raising it that you may view faintly its deeper recesses, the meaning of its religion, the passion of its human sorrow, and the struggle of its greater souls. All this I have ended with a tale twice told but seldom written and a chapter of song. Some of these thoughts of mine have seen the light before in other guise. For kindly consenting to their republication here in altered and extended form, I must thank the publishers of the Atlantic Monthly, The World's Work, The Dial, The New World, and the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science. Before each chapter, as now printed, stands a bar of the sorrow songs, some echo of haunting melody from the only American music which welled up from black souls in the dark past. And finally, need I add that I who speak here 
am bone of the bone and flesh of the flesh of them that live within the veil. W.E.B. Du Bois, Atlanta, Georgia, February 1st, 1903. Chapter 1. Of Our Spiritual Strivings. O water, voice of my heart, crying in the sand, all night long crying with a mournful cry, as I lie and listen and cannot understand the voice of my heart in my side or the voice of the sea. O water, crying for rest, is it I, is it I? All night long the water is crying to me. On resting water there shall never be rest till the last moon droop, and the last tide fail, and the fire of the end begin to burn in the west, and the heart shall be weary, and wonder and cry like the sea, all life long crying without avail, as the water all night long is crying to me. Arthur Simmons Between me and the other world, there is ever an unasked question, unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it. All, nevertheless, flutter round it. They approach me in a half-hesitant sort of way, eye me curiously or compassionately, and then, instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem, they say, I know an excellent colored man in my town, or... I fought at Mechanicsville, or do not these southern outrages make your blood boil? At these I smile, or am interested, or reduce the boiling to a simmer as the occasion may require. To the real question, how does it feel to be a problem? I answer seldom a word, and yet being a problem is a strange experience, peculiar even for one who has never been anything else, save perhaps in babyhood and in Europe. It is in the early days of rollicking boyhood that the revelation first bursts upon one, all in a day, as it were. I remember well when the shadow swept across me. I was a little thing, away up in the hills of New England, where the dark Housatonic winds between Hoosick and Taconic to the sea. In a wee wooden schoolhouse, something put it into the boys' and girls' heads to buy gorgeous visiting cards, ten cents a package, and exchange. The exchange was merry, till one girl a tall newcomer, refused my card, refused it peremptorily with a glance. Then it dawned upon me with a certain suddenness that I was different from the others, or like, mayhap, in heart and life and longing, but shut out from their world by a vast veil. I had thereafter no desire to tear down that veil, to creep through. I held all beyond it in common contempt and lived above it in a region of blue sky and great wandering shadows. That sky was bluest when I could beat my mates at examination time, or beat them at a foot race, or even beat their stringy heads. Alas, with the years all this fine contempt began to fade, for the words I longed for and all their dazzling opportunities 
were theirs, not mine. But they should not keep these prizes, I said. Some, all, I would wrest from them. Just how I would do it, I could never decide. By reading law, by healing the sick, by telling the wonderful tales that swam in my head. Some way. With other black boys, the strife was not so fiercely sunny. Their youth shrunk into tasteless sycophancy or into silent hatred of the pale world about them and mocking distrust of everything white, or wasted itself in a bitter cry. Why did God make me an outcast and a stranger in mine own house? The shades of the prison house closed round about us all, walls straight and stubborn to the whitest, but relentlessly narrow, tall, and unscalable to the sons of night, who must plod darkly on in resignation, or beat unavailing palms against the stone, or steadily, half-hopelessly, watch the streak of blue above. After the Egyptian and Indian, the Greek and Roman, the Teuton and Mongolian, the Negro is a sort of seventh son, born with a veil and gifted with second sight in this American world, a world which yields him no true self-consciousness, but only lets him see himself through the revelation of the other world. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. One ever feels his twoness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. The history of the American Negro is the history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, to merge his double self into a better and truer self. In this merging, he wishes neither of the older selves to be lost. He would not Africanize America, for America has too much to teach the world and Africa. He would not bleach his Negro soul in a flood of white Americanism, for he knows that Negro blood has a message for the world. He simply wishes to make it possible for a man to be both a Negro and an American without being cursed and spit upon by his fellows, without having the doors of opportunity closed roughly in his face. This, then, is the end of his striving, to be a co-worker in the kingdom of culture, to escape both death and isolation, to husband and use his best powers and his latent genius. These powers of body and mind have in the past been strangely wasted, dispersed, or forgotten. The shadow of a mighty Negro past flits through the tale of Ethiopia the shadowy and of Egypt the sphinx. Through history, the powers of single black men flash here and there like falling stars and die sometimes before the world has rightly gauged their brightness. Here in America, in the few days since emancipation, the black man's turning hither and thither in hesitant and doubtful striving has often made his very strength to lose effectiveness, to seem like absence of power, like weakness. And yet it is not weakness. It is the contradiction of double aims. The double-aimed struggle of the black artisan, on the one hand, to escape white contempt for a nation of mere hewers of wood and drawers of water, and on the other hand, to plow and nail and dig for a poverty-stricken horde, could only result in making him a poor craftsman. 
for he had but half a heart in either cause. By the poverty and ignorance of his people, the Negro minister or doctor was tempted toward quackery and demagogy, and by the criticism of the other world toward ideals that made him ashamed of his lowly tasks. The would-be black savant was confronted by the paradox that the knowledge his people needed was a twice-told tale to his white neighbors, while the knowledge which would teach the white world was Greek to his own flesh and blood. The innate love of harmony and beauty that set the ruder souls of his people a-dancing and a-singing raised but confusion and doubt in the soul of the black artist, for the beauty revealed to him was the sole beauty of a race which his larger audience despised, and he could not articulate the message of another people. This waste of double aims, this seeking to satisfy two unreconciled ideals, has wrought sad havoc with the courage and faith and deeds of ten thousand thousand people, has sent them often wooing false gods and invoking false means of salvation, and at times has even seemed about to make them ashamed of themselves. Away back in the days of bondage, they thought to see in one divine event the end of all doubt and disappointment. Few men ever worshipped freedom with half such unquestioning faith as did the American Negro for two centuries. To him, so far as he thought and dreamed, slavery was indeed the sum of all villainies, the cause of all sorrow, the root of all prejudice. Emancipation was the key to a promised land of sweeter beauty than ever stretched before the eyes of wearied Israelites. In song and exhortation swelled one refrain, liberty. In his tears and curses, the God he implored had freedom in his right hand. At last it came, suddenly, fearfully, like a dream. With one wild carnival of blood and passion came the message in his own plaintive cadences, Shout, O children, shout you're free, for God has bought your liberty. Years have passed away since then. Ten, twenty, forty. Forty years of national life, forty years of renewal and development. And yet the swarthy specter sits in its accustomed seat at the nation's feast. In vain do we cry to this, our vastest social problem, take any shape but that, and my firm nerves shall never tremble. The nation has not yet found peace from its sins. The freedman has not yet found in freedom his promised land. Whatever of good may have come in these years of change, the shadow of a deep disappointment rests upon the Negro people, a disappointment all the more bitter because the unattained ideal was unbounded save by the simple ignorance of a lowly people. The first decade was merely a prolongation of the vain search for freedom, the boon that seemed ever barely to elude their grasp like a tantalizing will-o'-the-wisp, maddening and misleading the headless host. The holocaust of war, the terrors of the Ku Klux Klan, the lies of the carpetbaggers, the disorganization of industry, and the contradictory advice of friends and foes left the bewildered serf with no new watchword beyond the old cry for freedom. As the time flew, however, he began to grasp a new idea, the ideal of liberty demanded for its attainment powerful means, and these the Fifteenth Amendment gave him.
The ballot, which before he had looked upon as a visible sign of freedom, he now regarded as the chief means of gaining and perfecting the liberty with which war had partially endowed him. And why not? Had not votes made war and emancipated millions? Had not votes enfranchised the freedmen? Was anything impossible to a power that had done all this? A million black men started with renewed zeal to vote themselves into the kingdom. So the decade flew away. The revolution of 1876 came and left the half-free serf weary, wondering, but still inspired. Slowly but steadily in the following years, a new vision began gradually to replace the dream of political power, a powerful movement, the rise of another ideal to guide the unguided, another pillar of fire by night after a clouded day. It was the ideal of book learning, the curiosity born of compulsory ignorance to know and test the power of the cabalistic letters of the white man, the longing to know. Here at last seemed to have been discovered the mountain path to Canaan, longer than the highway of emancipation and law, steep and rugged, but straight, leading to heights high enough to overlook life. Up the new path the advance guard toiled, slowly, heavily, doggedly. Only those who have watched and guided the faltering feet, the misty minds, the dull understandings of the dark pupils of these schools know how faithfully, how piteously, this people strove to learn. It was weary work. The cold statistician wrote down the inches of progress here and there, noted also where here and there a foot had slipped or someone had fallen. To the tired climbers, the horizon was ever dark, the mists were often cold, the Canaan was always dim and far away. If, however, the vistas disclosed as yet no goal, no resting place, little but flattery and criticism, the journey at least gave leisure for reflection and self-examination. It changed the child of emancipation to the youth with dawning self-consciousness, self-realization, self-respect. In those somber forests of his striving, his own soul rose before him, and he saw himself darkly as through a veil, and yet... He saw in himself some faint revelation of his power, of his mission. He began to have a dim feeling that to attain his place in the world, he must be himself and not another. For the first time, he sought to analyze the burden he bore upon his back, that dead weight of social degradation partially masked behind a half-named Negro problem. He felt his poverty without a cent, without a home, without land, tools, or savings. He had entered into competition with rich, landed, skilled neighbors. To be a poor man is hard, but to be a poor race in a land of dollars is the very bottom of hardships. He felt the weight of his ignorance, not simply of letters, but of life, of business, of the humanities, the accumulated sloth and shirking and awkwardness of decades and centuries shackled his hands and feet. Nor was his burden all poverty and ignorance. The red stain of bastardy, which two centuries of systematic legal defilement of Negro women had stamped upon his race, meant not only the loss of ancient African chastity, but also the hereditary weight of a mass of corruption from white adulterers, threatening almost the obliteration of the Negro home. 
A people thus handicapped ought not to be asked to race with the world, but rather allowed to give all its time and thought to its own social problems. But alas, while sociologists gleefully count his bastards and his prostitutes, the very soul of the toiling, sweating black man is darkened by the shadow of a vast despair. Men call the shadow prejudice and learnedly explain it as the natural defense of culture against barbarism, learning against ignorance, purity against crime, the higher against the lower races, to which the Negro cries Amen, and swears that to so much of this strange prejudice as is founded on just homage to civilization, culture, righteousness, and progress, he humbly bows and meekly does obeisance. But before that nameless prejudice that leaps beyond all this, he stands helpless, dismayed, and well-nigh speechless. Before that personal disrespect and mockery, the ridicule and systematic humiliation the distortion of fact and wanton license of fancy, the cynical ignoring of the better and the boisterous welcoming of the worse, the all-pervading desire to inculcate disdain for everything black from Toussaint to the devil, before this there arises a sickening despair that would disarm and discourage any nation save that black host to whom discouragement is an unwritten word. But the facing of so vast a prejudice could not but bring the inevitable self-questioning, self-disparagement, and lowering of ideals, whichever accompany repression, and breed in an atmosphere of contempt and hate. Whisperings and portents came home upon the four winds. Lo, we are diseased and dying, cried the dark hosts. We cannot write. Our voting is vain. What need of education since we must always cook and serve? And the nation echoed and enforced this self-criticism, saying, Be content to be servants and nothing more. What need of higher culture for half-men? Away with the black man's ballot by force or fraud. And behold, the suicide of a race. Nevertheless, out of the evil came something of good, the more careful adjustment of education to real life the clearer perception of the Negro's social responsibilities and the sobering realization of the meaning of progress. So dawned the time of Sturm und Drang. Storm and stress today rocks our little boat on the mad waters of the world sea. There is within and without the sound of conflict, the burning of body and rending of soul. Inspiration strives with doubt and faith with vain questionings. The bright ideals of the past, physical freedom, political power, the training of brains and the training of hands, all these, in turn, have waxed and waned until even the last grows dim and overcast. Are they all wrong? All false? No, not that. But each alone was oversimple and incomplete. The dreams of a credulous race childhood or the fond imaginings of the other world which does not know and does not want to know our power. To be really true, all these ideals must be melted and welded into one. The training of the schools we need today more than ever. The training of deft hands, quick eyes and ears, and above all, the broader, deeper, higher culture of gifted minds and pure hearts. 
the power of the ballot we need in sheer self-defense. Else what shall save us from a second slavery? Freedom, too, the long sought. We still seek the freedom of life and limb, freedom to work and think, the freedom to love and aspire. Work, culture, liberty, all these we need, not singly, but together, not successively, but together, each growing and aiding each, and all striving toward that vaster ideal that swims before the Negro people, the ideal of human brotherhood gained through the unifying ideal of race, the ideal of fostering and developing the traits and talents of the Negro, not in opposition to or contempt for other races, but rather in large conformity to the greater ideals of the American Republic, in order that someday on American soil, two world races may give each to each those characteristics both so sadly lack. We, the darker ones, come even now not altogether empty-handed, there are today no truer exponents of the pure human spirit of the Declaration of Independence than the American Negroes. There is no true American music but the wild, sweet melodies of the Negro slave. The American fairy tales and folklore are Indian and African. And, all in all, we black men seem the sole oasis of simple faith and reverence in a dusty desert of dollars and smartness. Will America be poorer if she replace her brutal dyspeptic blundering with light-hearted but determined Negro humility? Or her coarse and cruel wit with loving, jovial good humor? Or her vulgar music with the soul of the sorrow songs? Merely a concrete test of the underlying principles of the great republic is the Negro problem. And the spiritual striving of the freedmen's sons is the travail of souls whose burden is almost beyond the measure of their strength, but who bear it in the name of an historic race, in the name of this, the land of their fathers' fathers, and in the name of human opportunity. And now what I have briefly sketched in large outline, let me on coming pages tell again in many ways, with loving emphasis and deeper detail, that men may listen to the striving in the souls of black folk. End of chapter 1. The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois Music and Text Recorded by Toria's Uncle Chapter 2 Of the Dawn of Freedom Careless seems the great avenger. History's lessons but record one death struggle in the darkness, twixt old systems and the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. Lowell.
The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, the relation of the darker to the lighter races of men in Asia and Africa, in America and the islands of the sea. It was a phase of this problem that caused the Civil War, and however much they who marched south and north in 1861 may have fixed on the technical points of union and local autonomy as a shibboleth, all nevertheless knew, as we know, that the question of Negro slavery was the real cause of the conflict. Curious it was, too, how this deeper question ever forced itself to the surface, despite effort and disclaimer. No sooner had northern armies touched southern soil than this old question, newly guised, sprang from the earth, what shall be done with Negroes? Peremptory military commands this way and that could not answer the query. The Emancipation Proclamation seemed but to broaden and intensify the difficulties, and the war amendments made the Negro problems of today. It is the aim of this essay to study the period of history from 1861 to 1872, so far as it relates to the American Negro. In effect, this tale of the dawn of freedom is an account of that government of men called the Freedmen's Bureau, one of the most singular and interesting of the attempts made by a great nation to grapple with vast problems of race and social condition. The war has naught to do with slaves, cried Congress, the President, and the nation, and yet no sooner had the armies, east and west, penetrated Virginia and Tennessee than fugitive slaves appeared within their lines. They came at night, when the flickering campfires shone like vast, unsteady stars along the black horizon, old men and thin with gray and tufted hair, women with frightened eyes dragging whimpering hungry children, men and girls, stalwart and gaunt, a horde of starving vagabonds, homeless, helpless, and pitiable in their dark distress. Two methods of treating these newcomers seemed equally logical to opposite sorts of minds. Ben Butler in Virginia quickly declared slave property contraband of war and put the fugitives to work, while Fremont in Missouri declared the slaves free under martial law. Butler's action was approved, but Fremont's was hastily countermanded, and his successor, Halleck, saw things differently. Hereafter, he commanded, no slaves should be allowed to come into your lines at all. If any come without your knowledge, when owners call for them, deliver them. Such a policy was difficult to enforce. Some of the black refugees declared themselves freemen. Others showed that their masters had deserted them, and still others were captured with forts and plantations. Evidently, too, slaves were a source of strength to the Confederacy and were being used as laborers and producers. They constitute a military resource, wrote Secretary Cameron late in 1861, and being such that they should not be turned over to the enemy is too plain to discuss. So gradually the tone of the army chiefs changed. Congress forbade the rendition of fugitives, and Butler's contrabands were welcomed as military laborers. This complicated rather than solved the problem, for now the scattering fugitives became a steady stream, which flowed faster as the armies marched. Then the long-headed man with care-chiseled face, who sat in the White House, saw the inevitable and emancipated the slaves of rebels on New Year's 1863, a month later, Congress called earnestly for the Negro soldiers whom the Act of July 1862 had half-grudgingly allowed to enlist. 
Thus the barriers were leveled and the deed was done. The stream of fugitives swelled to a flood and anxious army officers kept inquiring what must be done with slaves arriving almost daily. Are we to find food and shelter for women and children? It was a Pierce of Boston who pointed out the way and thus became in a sense the founder of the Freedmen's Bureau. He was a firm friend of Secretary Chase, and when in 1861 the care of slaves and abandoned lands devolved upon the Treasury officials, Pierce was specially detained from the ranks to study the conditions. First he cared for the refugees at Fortress Monroe, and then after Sherman had captured Hilton Head, Pierce was sent there to found his Port Royal experiment of making free working men out of slaves. Before his experiment was barely started, however, the problem of the fugitives had assumed such proportions that it was taken from the hands of the overburdened Treasury Department and given to the Army officials. Already, centers of massed freedmen were forming at Fortress Monroe, Washington, New Orleans, Vicksburg and Corinth, Columbus, Kentucky, and Cairo, Illinois, as well as at Port Royal. Army chaplains found here new and fruitful fields. Superintendents of contrabands multiplied and some attempt at systematic work was made by enlisting the able-bodied men and giving work to the others. Then came the Freedmen's Aid Societies, born of the touching appeals from Pierce and from these other centers of distress. There was the American Missionary Association, sprung from the Amistad, and now full-grown for work, the various church organizations, the National Freedmen's Relief Association, the American Freedmen's Union, the Western Freedmen's Aid Commission, in all 50 or more active organizations which sent clothes, money, school books, and teachers southward. All they did was needed, for the destitution of the freedmen was often reported as too appalling for belief, and the situation was daily growing worse rather than better. And daily, too, it seemed more plain that this was no ordinary matter of temporary relief, but a national crisis for here loomed a labor problem of vast dimensions. Masses of Negroes stood idle, or if they worked spasmodically, were never sure of pay, and if perchance they received pay, squandered the new thing thoughtlessly. In these and other ways were camp life and the new liberty demoralizing the freedmen. The broader economic organization thus clearly demanded sprang up here and there as accident and local conditions determined. Here it was that Pierce's Port Royal plan of leased plantations and guided workmen pointed out the rough way. In Washington, the military governor, at the urgent appeal of the superintendent, opened confiscated estates to the cultivation of the fugitives, and there in the shadow of the dome gathered black farm villages. General Dix gave over estates to the freedmen of Fortress Monroe, and so on, south and west. The government and benevolent societies furnished the means of cultivation, and the Negro turned again slowly to work. The systems of control thus started rapidly grew here and there into strange little governments, like that of General Banks in Louisiana, with its 90,000 black subjects, its 50,000 guided laborers, and its annual budget of $100,000 and more. It made out 4,000 payrolls a year, registered all freedmen, inquired into grievances and redressed them, laid and collected taxes, and established a system of public schools. So, too, Colonel Eaton, the superintendent of Tennessee and Arkansas, ruled over 100,000 freedmen, leased and cultivated 7,000 acres of cotton land, and fed 10,000 paupers a year. In South Carolina was General Saxton, with his deep interest in black folk, 
he succeeded Pierce and the treasury officials and sold forfeited estates, leased abandoned plantations, encouraged schools, and received from Sherman, after that terribly picturesque march to the sea, thousands of the wretched camp followers. Three characteristic things one might have seen in Sherman's raid through Georgia, which threw the new situation in shadowy relief. The conqueror, the conquered, and the Negro. Some see all significance in the grim front of the destroyer, and some in the bitter sufferers of the lost cause. But to me, neither soldier nor fugitive speaks with so deep a meaning as that dark human cloud that clung like remorse on the rear of those swift columns, swelling at times to half their size, almost engulfing and choking them. In vain were they ordered back. In vain were bridges hewn from beneath their feet. On they trudged and writhed and surged until they rolled into Savannah a starved and naked horde of tens of thousands. There, too, came the characteristic military remedy. The islands from Charleston south, the abandoned rice fields along the river for 30 miles back from the sea, and the country bordering the St. John's River, Florida, are reserved and set apart for the settlement of Negroes, now made free by act of war. So read the celebrated field order number 15. All these experiments, orders, and systems were bound to attract and perplex the government and the nation. Directly after the Emancipation Proclamation, Representative Elliott had introduced a bill creating a Bureau of Emancipation, but it was never reported. The following June, a committee of inquiry appointed by the Secretary of War reported in favor of a temporary Bureau for the improvement, protection, and employment of refugee freedmen on much the same lines as were afterward followed. Petitions came in to President Lincoln from distinguished citizens and organizations strongly urging a comprehensive and unified plan of dealing with the freedmen under a bureau which should be charged with the study of plans and execution of measures for easily guiding and in every way judiciously and humanely aiding the passage of our emancipated and yet to be emancipated blacks from the old condition of forced labor to their new state of voluntary industry. Some half-hearted steps were taken to accomplish this, in part by putting the whole matter again in charge of the special treasury agents. Laws of 1863 and 1864 directed them to take charge of and lease abandoned lands for periods not exceeding 12 months and to provide in such leases or otherwise for the employment and general welfare of the freedmen. Most of the Army officers greeted this as a welcome relief from perplexing Negro affairs and Secretary Fessenden, July 29, 1864, issued an excellent system of regulations, which were afterward closely followed by General Howard. Under Treasury agents, large quantities of land were leased in the Mississippi Valley, and many Negroes were employed. But in August 1864, the new regulations were suspended for reasons of public policy, and the Army was again in control. Meanwhile, Congress had turned its attention to the subject, and in March the House passed a bill by a majority of two establishing a Bureau for Freedmen in the War Department. Charles Sumner, who had charge of the bill in the Senate, argued that freedmen and abandoned lands ought to be under the same department and reported a substitute for the House bill attaching the Bureau to the Treasury Department. This bill passed, but too late for action by the House. The debates wandered over the whole policy of the administration and the general question of slavery, without touching very closely the specific merits of the measure in hand. Then the national election took place, 
and the administration, with a vote of renewed confidence from the country, addressed itself to the matter more seriously. A conference between the two branches of Congress agreed upon a carefully drawn measure which contained the chief provisions of Sumner's bill, but made the proposed organization a department independent of both the war and the treasury officials. The bill was conservative, giving the new department general superintendence of all freedmen. Its purpose was to establish regulations for them, protect them, lease them lands, adjust their wages, and appear in civil and military courts as their next friend. There were many limitations attached to the power thus granted, and the organization was made permanent. Nevertheless, the Senate defeated the bill, and a new conference committee was appointed. This committee reported a new bill, February 28th, which was whirled through just as the session closed, and became the Act of 1865, establishing in the War Department a Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands. This last compromise was a hasty bit of legislation, vague and uncertain in outline. A bureau was created to continue during the present War of Rebellion and for one year thereafter, to which was given the supervision and management of all lands and the control of all subjects relating to refugees and freedmen under such rules and regulations as may be presented by the head of the bureau and approved by the president. A commissioner appointed by the president and the senate was to control the bureau with an office force not exceeding ten clerks. The president might also appoint assistant commissioners in the seceded states, and to all these offices military officials might be detailed at regular pay. The Secretary of War could issue rations, clothing, and fuel to the destitute, and all abandoned property was placed in the hands of the Bureau for eventual lease and sale to ex-slaves in 40-acre parcels. Thus did the United States government definitely assume charge of the emancipated Negro as the ward of the nation. It was a tremendous undertaking. Here, at a stroke of the pen, was erected a government of millions of men, and not ordinary men either, but black men emasculated by a peculiarly complete system of slavery centuries old. And now, suddenly, violently, they come into a new birthright at a time of war and passion in the midst of the stricken and embittered population of their former masters. Any man might well have hesitated to assume charge of such a work with vast responsibilities, indefinite powers, and limited resources. Probably no one but a soldier would have answered such a call promptly and indeed no one but a soldier could be called, for Congress had appropriated no money for salaries and expenses. Less than a month after the weary emancipator passed to his rest, his successor assigned Major General Oliver O. Howard to duty as commissioner of the new bureau. He was a Maine man, then only 35 years of age. He had marched with Sherman to the sea, had fought well at Gettysburg, and but the year before had been assigned to the command of the Department of Tennessee. An honest man with too much faith in human nature, little aptitude for business and intricate detail, he had had large opportunity of becoming acquainted at first hand with much of the work before him. And of that work it has been truly said that no approximately correct history of civilization can ever be written which does not throw out in bold relief as one of the great landmarks of political and social progress the organization and administration of the Freedmen's Bureau. On May 12, 1865, Howard was appointed, and he assumed the duties of his office promptly on the 15th and began examining the field of work. A curious mess he looked upon. 
little despotisms, communistic experiments, slavery, peonage, business speculations, organized charity, unorganized almsgiving, all reeling on under the guise of helping the freedmen, and all enshrined in the smoke and blood of the war and the cursing and silence of angry men. On May 19th, the new government, for a government it really was, issued its constitution. Commissioners were to be appointed in each of the seceded states who were to take charge of all subjects relating to refugees and freedmen, and all relief and rations were to be given by their consent alone. The Bureau invited continued cooperation with benevolent societies and declared, it will be the object of all commissioners to introduce practicable systems of compensated labor and to establish schools. Forthwith, nine assistant commissioners were appointed. They were to hasten to their fields of work, seek gradually to close relief establishments, and make the destitute self-supporting, act as courts of law where there were no courts or where Negroes were not recognized in them as free, establish the institution of marriage among ex-slaves and keep records, see that freedmen were free to choose their employers and help in making fair contracts for them. And finally, the circular said, simple good faith, for which we hope on all hands, for those concerned in the passing away of slavery, will especially relieve the assistant commissioners in the discharge of their duties toward the freedmen, as well as promote the general welfare. No sooner was the work thus started, and the general system and local organization in some measure begun, then two grave difficulties appeared which changed largely the theory and outcome of Bureau work. First, there were the abandoned lands of the South. It had long been the more or less definitely expressed theory of the North that all the chief problems of emancipation might be settled by establishing the slaves on the forfeited lands of their masters, a sort of poetic justice, said some. But this poetry done into solemn prose meant either a wholesale confiscation of private property in the South or vast appropriations. Now Congress had not appropriated assent, and no sooner did the proclamations of general amnesty appear than the 800,000 acres of abandoned lands in the hands of the Freedmen's Bureau melted quickly away. The second difficulty lay in perfecting the local organization of the Bureau throughout the wide field of work. Making a new machine and sending out officials of duly ascertained fitness for a great work of social reform is no child's task, but this task was even harder for a new central organization had to be fitted on a heterogeneous and confused but already existing system of relief and control of ex-slaves, and the agents available for this work must be sought for in an army still busy with war operations, men in the very nature of the case ill-fitted for delicate social work, or among the questionable camp followers of an invading host. Thus, after a year's work, vigorously as it was pushed, the problem looked even more difficult to grasp and solve than at the beginning. Nevertheless, three things that year's work did well worth the doing. It relieved a vast amount of physical suffering. It transported 7,000 fugitives from congested centers back to the farm. And best of all, it inaugurated the crusade of the New England school ma'am. The annals of this Ninth Crusade are yet to be written, the tale of a mission that seemed to our age far more quixotic than the quest of St. Louis seemed to his. Behind the mists of ruin and rapine waved the calico dresses of women who dared, and after the hoarse mouthings of the field guns rang the rhythm of the alphabet. Rich and poor they were, serious and curious, bereaved now of a father, now of a brother, now of more than these. They came seeking a life work in planting New England schoolhouses among the white and black of the South. They did their work well. In that first year, they taught 100,000 souls and more. 
Evidently, Congress must soon legislate again on the hastily organized Bureau, which had grown so quickly into wide significance and vast possibilities. An institution such as that was well nigh as difficult to end as to begin. Early in 1866, Congress took up the matter when Senator Trumbull of Illinois introduced a bill to extend the Bureau and enlarge its powers. This measure received at the hands of Congress far more thorough discussion and attention than its predecessor. The war cloud had thinned enough to allow a clearer conception of the work of emancipation. The champions of the bill argued that the strengthening of the Freedmen's Bureau was still a military necessity, that it was needed for the proper carrying out of the 13th Amendment, and was a work of sheer justice to the ex-slave at a trifling cost to the government. The opponents of the measure declared that the war was over and the necessity for war measures passed, that the Bureau, by reason of its extraordinary powers, was clearly unconstitutional in time of peace and was destined to irritate the South and pauperize the freedmen at a final cost of possibly hundreds of millions. These two arguments were unanswered, and indeed unanswerable. The one that the extraordinary powers of the Bureau threatened the civil rights of all citizens, and the other that the government must have power to do what manifestly must be done, and that present abandonment of the freedmen meant their practical re-enslavement. The bill which finally passed enlarged and made permanent the Freedmen's Bureau. It was promptly vetoed by President Johnson as unconstitutional, unnecessary, and extrajudicial, and failed of passage over the veto. Meantime, however, the breach between Congress and the President began to broaden, and a modified form of the lost bill was finally passed over the President's second veto, July 16th. The Act of 1866 gave the Freedmen's Bureau its final form, the form by which it will be known to posterity and judged of men. It extended the existence of the Bureau to July 1868. It authorized additional assistant commissioners, the retention of Army officers mustered out of regular service, the sale of certain forfeited lands to freedmen on nominal terms, the sale of Confederate public property for Negro schools, and a wider field of judicial interpretation and cognizance. The government of the unreconstructed South was thus put very largely in the hands of the Freedmen's Bureau, especially as in many cases the departmental military commander was now made also assistant commissioner. It was thus that the Freedmen's Bureau became a full-fledged government of men. It made laws, executed them, and interpreted them. It laid and collected taxes, defined and punished crime, maintained and used military force, and dictated such measures as it thought necessary and proper for the accomplishment of its varied ends. Naturally, all these powers were not exercised continuously, nor to their fullest extent. And yet, as General Howard has said, scarcely any subject that has to be legislated upon in civil society failed at one time or another to demand the action of this singular bureau. End of Chapter 2, Part 1